Hey, good morning, City Church. I hope you are enjoying your Sunday. Uh, obviously, I'm sad that we don't get to worship together in person this morning. However, on the rare occasion that there's a little bit of snow and you get to go play outside with your kids or whatever you're doing right now, um, enjoying a fresh cup of coffee or sitting by the fire or, or whatever you decide to do, I'm just grateful uh, that you're getting to do that. Now, uh, I promised you a couple weeks ago that we wouldn't be doing this very often. It feels a little bit like Groundhog Day, starting all over again. Uh, but honestly, this isn't going to happen that often. 2022, it's going to get off to an amazing start. So next week, we're going to gather back in person, and we're going to continue to worship. Now, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that, your physical Bible. Grab in your hand and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. All right, in Luke chapter 10, we're going to continue in this series that we called Rhythms of Growth. All of us want to start off the new year with these healthy rhythms of growth, and, and we want to help you do that. Matter of fact, our entire church is modeled off of this idea of helping you grow in the Christian life without adding a bunch of different programs to your life. I told you this last week, and I'll, I'll draw it for you again, but when we started the church, we began with this mission statement that we wanted to multiply disciples who do these three things. If you recall last week, I told you, we want you to worship God, serve our city, and love our world. Now, if you think about it, those three actions there, the three things that we do, the rhythms of growth are worship, serve, and love. They're, they're what um, we do in the Christian life to help grow. Last week, we talked about the first one, the idea of worship. And this week, I want to move on to the second one. But growth in the Christian life happens at the intersection of these three things. It happens at the intersection of the worship God, serve our city, and love our world. So last week I told you that worship, worship is the very first component of who we are and that God cares way more about who you are than what you do. Well, today I want to look at a pretty common parable. Even if you're new to Christianity, you've heard the concept of the Good Samaritan. And I want to talk through this parable for you. But before we do that, let, let, me, let me tell you why all of this is important. It's important because the Christian life is not meant to be compartmentalized. It's supposed to be holistic. It's supposed to be who we are. And that's why we don't program out our lives. We, we want to become something. We want to um, create healthy rhythms so that they don't just show up on Sunday mornings, but they're who we are. So that's why we worship God, serve our city, and love our world. So let's jump in. Let's jump into this parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, as we do that, uh, here, here's my, here's my uh, warning to you, if you will. Here's Here's what I want you to know is that what Jesus is about to say might come off a little countercultural, might come off a little provocative because it's, it runs so against the current of what most of us were taught whenever it comes to serving God. All right? So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, listen to what God's word says. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me pause for just a second because anytime you're jumping into the middle of a story, there is, there's context. Um, by the way, good Bible reading just idea is to look at what's going on right before the story, read the story, and look at what's going on 
after the story. So let me, let me paint a picture for you. Jesus had just sent out his 72 disciples back earlier in Luke chapter 10, and he tells them to go out two by two from town to town and start sharing the gospel. Well, those 72, they've come back, and it's almost like they're sitting around the campfire telling stories about the life change that they had experienced. By the way, all good teachers celebrate what they want to replicate. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's gathered with his friends. He's celebrating the wins. And this, this lawyer shows up. And when you think lawyer, don't think like a, a civil litigator. Don't think um, what you would think of like law and order. Think a, a, an expert in the law. He's more like a religious leader. Uh, think seminary professor instead of lawyer. So this, this expert in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, he's coming and he's listening in on these stories and and, and he just wants to be that guy. Everybody knows that guy. The guy who has to interject himself into the story so that he can one-up you every time that he has the chance to tell you how awesome he is. Well, that's what he does. And you know that because if you look at this little detail about what he does, he stood up. So imagine this. Jesus, he's hanging out. They're all sitting down. Uh, they're having some tea together and they're telling stories. And this guy, he stands up because he wants to make a point. He wants people to know what he is about to say. So he stands up to put Jesus to the test, and then he asks a question. Now, before we move on, and before I show you the question and why that all matters, listen to what Jesus said right before this parable. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, here's the point. When you read this parable, don't pull it out of context. You need to know that Luke placed the parable right after Jesus said that on purpose. Jesus is making the point that that lawyer was the wise and the understanding. If, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Jesus is not being super kind. Now, think about it. He's insinuating that this guy is the guy that doesn't get the gospel. So when, when this guy, this religious leader, stands up in front of all of Jesus' buddies to ask this question about how you inherit eternal life, you should read into the context that he doesn't get it. Listen, sometimes, sometimes we can be so intellectual that we check the boxes of the religion that we have without actually understanding the love of God. Let, let me say it this way. The idea of serving, which we're about to talk about, the idea of serving and loving our neighbors sounds way better than actually sacrificially serving and loving our neighbors. That's the big idea, by the way. It's a big idea for what we're going to talk about today. For a lot of us, I'm just honest with you, the last two years has revealed that, hasn't it? Hasn't it revealed to us that the concept of loving the people around us is actually a lot easier than sacrificially loving the people around us? Uh, it, it, it sounds a lot easier to do that than it actually does to do it. By the way, I use that word with intentionality. Sacrificial love. That's what service is. It takes sacrifice. All right? See the play on words? The, the play on words there is that Sometimes the people who seem to know all the knowledge don't actually get the gospel because they don't put the knowledge into action. 
That's what a rhythm is. That's what rhythms of growth look like. It's taking what you know about God and it's actually doing something with it. So you keep going with me. Um, here's what he says. Jesus looks at it and he says to him, well, what is written in the law? You're a law expert. You're the lawyer. You tell me how you read it. I love this. Sometimes the wisest thing you can do when somebody's trying to trip you up is ask good questions. As a matter of fact, it's just wise to ask good questions all the time. If you want to know your kid's heart, ask them good questions and people tend to reveal themselves. So he asked him, how do you read it? Well, listen to what he says. Verse 27. And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. You go and do this, and you will live. Now, here's the crazy thing. The religious leader, the lawyer, he knew the intellectual answer. He, he knew that the entire law could be summed up into those two things. Jesus even says that. That's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the Ten Commandments, it can be broken up that way. The first four commandments are all about how you love God. The last six commandments are all about how you love your neighbor. So Jesus tells him, you go and do this and, and you'll live. You know what's crazy about that statement? Let me just ask you, how many people do you know who have ever done that? See, that's, that's the point. The point is, is if you tell somebody to live out the Ten Commandments perfectly, it's not possible. It's not possible to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All of us fall short of this. See, the point is, is that the lawyer should have been smart enough to know that that's not possible. That's the problem with religion, by the way. Religion will always deceive you into believing that you can earn your own way to heaven. The lawyer was blinded by his own need for grace? Well, because he thought, he thought that he was good enough. Write this down. You will never lead with compassion if you don't first get that you need the compassion of God. That, that's why the gospel is so important. You'll hear me talk about this every week. The gospel creates a humility that's needed in all of us if we ever want to really love our neighbors. We've got to let the gospel permeate into every being of ourselves because, well, until you see yourself rightly in front of God, you'll never have compassion on others. If you believe that you are righteous on your own, you will never serve the people around you because you'll think that they're lower than you. But if you see yourself first as a sinner and then sinned against, well, then that's when you start leading with compassion. I know I say this every week, but this is it. The gospel is that you and I, in and of ourselves, are not good enough, and yet we have received the unmerited grace and favor of God because Jesus, Jesus saw us as his neighbor, and he sacrificially served us. He lived our life that we could never live and died our death that we all deserve to die. Jesus became the outcast and was beaten so that you and I wouldn't have to be. Here's why that's so important. Loving God supremely, understanding the gospel, if you will, is the fuel to loving your neighbor well. According to the Bible, if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, you will become the type of person that loves their neighbor. If you remember last week, and you connect this back to worship, worship, I told you, the will of God has nothing to do with doing certain things. It's becoming the certain type of person. The same thing is true of serving. 
You see how they're connected? If you're going to serve well, it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who you are. Now watch this. If that's true, then loving your neighbor is one of the main ways that you will know if you love God. You see, if, if loving God is the fuel that, that makes you the type of person that loves your neighbor, well, then you can tell if you really love God by if you love your neighbor. You, tra- you tracking with me? You can tell the genuineness of your faith by how well you love the people around you. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? Can I tell you why the lawyer got this one wrong? Because he's putting qualifiers behind love. How many of us have ever done the exact same thing? We we determine if somebody's worthy of our love because of some preconditioned guidelines that maybe society or, 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 or culture has created for us. Like that homeless guy. Well, that homeless guy, he doesn't deserve my sacrificial love because he got himself into that situation. Or, or the guy, yeah, he lost his job because he had a DUI, and like, that's just dumb. And he, he made his bed, so now he's got to sleep in it. Or the ex-con, there's no way I'm helping him. He, you get my point? Like, or, or even the political, oh, the Democrats or the Republicans. Like, we put these conditions based on what our culture says, and because we do that, we, we qualify who gets our love. We, we, we justify ourselves because we believe the same thing that the lawyer was asking. We believe that only those who we determine are worthy enough to be our neighbor is our neighbor. So listen to what Jesus says. Jesus replied, by the way, it's, it's never a good idea to try to outsmart Jesus. You know that, right? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This wasn't a good day for this guy. <laughs> like, leaving him half dead literally means he was lying down on the side of the road. They robbed him, and they left him laying down on the side of the road. One, one important piece of information about this guy is he was probably a Jew. He was probably a Jew, and he was probably coming home from worship, like he had been in Jerusalem, and he's headed home to the suburbs of Jericho because, I mean, most people can't afford to live in the city, so they pack up, get in their car, or for him, probably got on his donkey and went home. Don't miss the setting, by the way. Jericho, Jericho was commonly known as the Pass of Blood. And it was one of the most dangerous roads that you could stop on. You, you, you really didn't stop there. Jesus is trying to set up a picture for you to see that what you're going to find is that if you're going to stop and help this guy, it's going to take sacrifice. See, because serving always takes sacrifice. It takes financial sacrifice. It might take a sacrifice of your time. It might be a sacrifice of your safety. It might even be a sacrifice of your pride because in order to associate with those people, if you will, like Jesus being a friend of sinners, puts you in a, a, a class where um, people don't want to associate with you. Every single time that we decide that we're going to serve, we have to decide that it's worth our sacrifice. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now what's fascinating is that priest was probably coming from the temple that this Jewish guy was just worshiping at. They they probably were coming home together. The priest had just preached, and they're headed home to the suburbs together. The, The picture here that Jesus is painting is that the priest was intentionally going to the other side of the road. 
Now, maybe he was doing that because he felt shame. I mean, again, I, I know a lot of us have been there. You, you see the homeless guy on the side of the road, and, and you kind of turn your head the other way because, well, you feel the shame and the, of not wanting to help them. Maybe, maybe that's what he was doing. Or e- even if you want to get to the point where you want to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, maybe he looked at this half-dead guy on the side of the road and thought, well, if, if he's dead and I touch him, then I become ceremonially unclean and I can't do my job. I, I get that. I, I, I really do, but there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than a pastor who is more righteous than he, he ought to be. Like, you know, there's, there's nothing worse than somebody who just wants to get up to look good, but they don't actually practice what they preach. That's what this guy was doing. Just, listen, you disqualify yourself from talking about God if you don't love the people around you. I, I know too many people that care more about speaking than they do about loving. And, and the reality is that you might be a good speaker, but over the long course, if you're not a good pastor, it doesn't really matter how good you speak. People want pastors, not speakers. They want people that love them well. They want authenticity. That's what this priest was lacking. He knew the law, just like the lawyer, but he didn't stop. See, the priest wanted to be the hero of the story. He, he I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the priest should have been the hero of the story. Not, not only was he the religious elite of the day, this guy was a fellow Jew. He was his brother. If you, if you think who's a neighbor, well, quite literally, they were neighbors. They might have lived in the same cul-de-sac. They were both Jews. They both went to the same church. So if anybody should have stopped to help, well, it would have been that guy. But again, I mean, think about, think about the hypocrisy of the church sometimes. I, I even hate to admit this, but how often do we not even help the people right in our own church, the people that we know, because it costs us time? See, that, that is the picture that you should be getting from here. Now, the lawyer, honestly, the lawyer is probably sitting there thinking, there you go, Jesus. You stick it to the man. That's right. It's not going to be the priest. It's not the religious elite. It's not Billy that's going to do all the work. It's the common guy. It's the guy out in the crowd. It's me. Well, Jesus goes on to the next one just to even prove his point a little more. So likewise, a Levite, now a Levite was like a JV priest, if you will. He was the guy who set up all the Levitical standards um, think liturgical stuff. He would have been the, the prayer guy and all that. He, he would have been the guy who was there to help. What you got to see from this is he was a religious elite too. So the Levite, the religious elite, when he came, he passed by. Now he adds a detail. He saw him and then he passed by on the other side. That idea of seeing him means, well, he probably looked up close. He was close enough to see him. Like he looked at the guy and consciously decided to walk to the other side of the road. Again, the, the, the lawyer here is probably sitting there thinking, that's right, that's right. They, they don't do, they're just vocational people. They get paid to do this job, and, and they're a bunch of hypocrites. So tell me next, Jesus, you're going to tell me that the guy who helped, the hero of the story, is a guy like me. Now listen to what Jesus says, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. All right, let me pause for a second. In order to get how provocative this is, you need to know some stuff. First, what Jesus did here was wild. Again, the lawyer, the lawyer was probably expecting Jesus to say it was like a righteous Jewish man who kept the law and prayed three times a day and he read his Bible and he had his journal that that was the guy. That was the guy. And yet that's not what he does. He says a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was racial tension that was so thick that you could cut it with a butter knife. 
You see, a couple hundred years prior, um, when the nation of Israel, before Jesus, was, was divided because of a civil war, if you've been around City Church, I've explained this to you, the nation of Israel became divided. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, after their civil war, they were both conquered um, by two different countries. So the northern kingdom was conquered by the, the Assyrians and the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. When that happened, the southern kingdom of Judah decided that they were going to stay uh, ethnically and religiously pure. Now, let me pause here for a second because you're going to see that the racial tension um, between the Samaritans and the Jews uh, was all about this idea of interracial marriage, but it really wasn't. It wasn't. It was about interreligious marriage. Okay, here's the difference because I I always want to make this caveat for you. The Bible is not against two different races marrying each other. Matter of fact, If you actually read the Bible correctly, there's no such thing as different races. We are one race. We are the human race. And that's a beautiful thing. So for some odd reason, we've created this racial construct that says that people who are maybe white and black or or white and Asian or whatever, or black and Asian, shouldn't marry each other. That's absolutely not true. God is all for that, and it's a beautiful thing. What the Bible is against is this idea of interreligious marriage because our religion is our worldview. So the northern kingdom of Israel, they decided to start marrying the Assyrians, and the Assyrians worshiped a pagan god. And as they did that, they, they created a new group called the Samaritans that, that really the Jewish people didn't believe that they worshiped God purely. It got to the point, it got so bad that, that the, the Samaritans created their own temple and the Jews decided to destroy it. And then the Samaritans, they would go and they would, they would literally put human bones inside of the Jewish people's temples to defile it so that they couldn't go in and worship. Matter of fact, there was a common prayer among the Jews that went something like this. God, on the day of the resurrection, don't accept the Samaritans. You want to talk about savage. It doesn't get any worse than that. See, it got so bad, again, that the Samaritans, if you ate with one, if you just went over with dinner with one, the Jews would say, It was like eating pig's flesh. That was about as low as it got for the Jewish people. Let me try to put this in modern day terms. It would be like a guy from Al-Qaeda stopping on the side of the road and helping a vulnerable woman soldier that they could totally do whatever they wanted to um, to destroy this person. You want to talk about, it it would be easy for them to demolish it, but, but they don't. See, this is the picture that the lawyer would have had. The lawyer would have had the idea that the, that the, that the Samaritan was the enemy, that, that you would never do this. So here's the crazy thing, though. Not only did Jesus use a Samaritan to tell the story and make him the hero, he flips the script. Everyone would have expected a Jewish man to stop to help a Samaritan in this story, because Jesus is telling this to a bunch of Jews. Everybody would have said, hey, yeah, of course he would, because obviously they're righteous, they're pious. But nobody would ever have expected it the opposite way. Listen, oftentimes, this is how it works. Oftentimes in our society, if I'm just being honest with you, we we see ourselves as pious. We we assume that we would be the ones that would stop. Of course we would. We're, you know, we're we're righteous. We go to church. We do everything. But, But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually saying it was the social outcasts. It was the down and out. It was the guy that... That, that nobody would have ever expected he was the hero. 
And, and oftentimes that's how it works. The people who have suffered the most tend to be the ones who are the most compassionate to their neighbors. And a lot of times we do the exact same thing as the priest and the Levite. We create assumptions about people that don't allow us to see their humanity. If I can quote a Muslim imam real quick, uh, which you don't hear very often being quoted, listen to what he says. He says, ignorance leads to fear. Fear leads to hate and hate leads to violence. Isn't that what happened? The priest and the Levite lack compassion because of their ignorance, which led to a form of hate, which led to a violence, a violence of leaving this guy on the side of the road. Now, now here's how Jesus flips the script on the lawyer. Listen carefully, because it's the same question we have to ask ourselves. See, the lawyer was expecting Jesus to at least say something like, if you walked down the road and you saw somebody, a Samaritan, would you stop to help him? But that's not what he says, because we could all make sense of that. We'd all have compassion on that. Watch what he says. He places the lawyer on the side of the road. And here's what he says to him. He says, if you were the one needing compassion, would you be able to receive it from your enemy? You see the difference? The righteous in us wants to be the one that's giving grace, and yet Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. We are the ones that need grace. That's the kind of response that it takes humility to, to get it. But, but it's exactly the kind of response that we have to have in face of the gospel. Don't we all have to confess that at some level we are the ones who need to be rescued by Jesus? That we're the wounded one on the side of the road, half dead, needing to be rescued. You see, it's when you have that posture, that's when you begin to be humble enough to receive God's grace and then give it to other people. It's deciding that you aren't the hero of the story and you need to be rescued. Tim Keller, he says that Jesus wasn't giving us a rule, but he was giving us a dynamic. He says this. He says, it's only whenever you can answer this question. What if you were saved by someone who owed you nothing but rejection? It's only when you can answer that question that you will become the type of person that will love your neighbor well. And here's the crazy thing. At the end of the story, Jesus asks the guy again. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 36. He says, which of them over there, which one of them do you think proved to be your neighbor? Listen to what the guy says. He said, the one who showed mercy. You know why that's fascinating? He can't even bring himself to call him a Samaritan. He can't even do it. Y'all, sometimes hate runs so deep that we can't even see people. And that's the problem. It's really hard to give people the benefit of the doubt and love them well if you hate them. Like, it's hard to serve and be free when you have hate in your heart. You see, the reason that a lot of us aren't experiencing growth in the Christian life is because we haven't been honest, super honest with ourselves to say, honestly, I don't want to serve them. If you're harboring bitterness towards someone or a group of people, you, you will never serve them well. So let me just get real practical. For some odd reason in our country right now, there, there's a political divide. And we, we all know there's a racial divide. Uh, we don't like to talk about it, but, but there is. And there's a political divide. And we tend not to want to help people that don't check our boxes anymore. They don't fit into our ideological framework. So what we do is we characterize them by their political affiliation. And when you do that, you minimize their, uh, their identity to a place to where they don't even have a name anymore. They're just, they're just a caricature. We, we do this with a lot of things. 
Think about how we've done it with sexual orientation, right? You know, like, we tend to stigmatize people because you either have a conservative view of sexuality or a liberal view. You're, you're gay or you're straight. You, you know what happens when we do that? We tend to stop seeing people as people. Now, let me tell you, for most of us, the way that we get around this is we just ignore it. We just don't have friends that are different than us. But sometimes it hits close to home. I, I remember um, I became a pastor and, and my aunt, my aunt is gay and she came to visit my wife and I with her partner and, and we, we just decided as a family we were going to be as compassionate and kind to her as you could be. And, and she asked me at the end of the time, like, hey, I know you don't agree with my lifestyle. Why, why are you treating me like this? And I said, because you're more than your lifestyle. You're a human being that I love. And, and obviously, we disagree on this, but, but you're, I don't reduce you down to your sexuality. I see you as so much more. You are my aunt whom I love, and we will always have a relationship together. You see, you will start to love people and serve people well when you stop reducing them down to a caricature, and you see them as so much more than that. In order to be free to do that, you have to first confess that, well, you, you, you have some of these preconceived notions in your heart. I love the way that Tim Keller talks about freedom. It's so helpful. Listen to what he says. He says, we see that freedom is not what culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It's not the absence of constraints, but it's the choosing of right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. See what he's saying? The point is, is if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, if you want to do anything in life, you have to realize that there's no such thing as absolute freedom. The Christian life is about sacrifice. The only way that you'll ever stop looking at people like this and start falling in love with the idea of serving others is when you first are truly secure in God. And again, you remember, to love your neighbor means that you must love God first. That, that's the point. To be truly free is to find your identity completely uh, fulfilled in God. And then as you do that, you're, you're willing to constrain some of those things in order to love people around you. When you love God, you start to see people the way that God does. Look at verse 34. He went to him, the Samaritan, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil on and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You notice how costly compassion is? The Samaritan, he didn't just stop. He didn't just pray for the guy. He didn't, you know, like we do, I'll pray for you. He doesn't do that. He sacrificed. He even was willing to go back and care for the guy. That's what loving our neighbor looks like. It means we take care of their basic needs through compassion, time, and finances. It's holistic. It's, it's not a handout. We didn't just pray for them or pay, pay their way. We, we, we stop. We care. We take care of them. And again, the only way that you'll ever care for somebody is if you care about them. You hear what I'm saying? You have to see the humanity in them. You got to view people the way that God views them. Do you see the humanity in people? At a heart level, are you filled with compassion? Or do you have a reason why you can't help them? You know, the main difference between the religious elite and the Samaritan 
is how they asked the question. The religious elite would ask the question, if I stop to help, what will happen? Right? There's, there's a lot of fear in that. I don't, I don't know about you, but we tend to analyze our situations. Well, if I go down to that part of the city and I do that, then I'm at risk. And what's going to happen? Do I lose my time? Am I going to miss my meeting or whatever? The Samaritan actually reversed the question and said, if I don't stop to help, what will happen? See, the first group thought about themselves first. And then the Samaritan, he put others before himself. Isn't that the key to loving people well? Isn't it our ability to put other people's needs ahead of ourselves? Verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? Well, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. See, after all of that, the question is, who's my neighbor? And what does it look like to love my neighbor well? Well, according to Jesus... Your neighbor is anyone who has a need. Notice that Jesus doesn't even give the, the guy a, a name. He, he gives him a need. And that's the case. It's anybody who has a need. That's the point that all of us, it's not, it's not a certain person. It's a certain type of person. It's the vulnerable. It, it's the person who has an autoimmune disease and they can't, they can't go out in public right now. And, and we're in a global pandemic. So we sacrifice for them. It's the person who maybe lost their job or, or just got a divorce or he's experienced a miscarriage. All these things are happening in real time right now. How do we love them? Uh, listen how Martin Luther King Jr. said it. This is, listen to what he says. He says, is he is anybody, your neighbor is anybody toward whom you are neighborly. He is anyone who lies in need at life's roadside. He is neither Jew nor Gentile. He's neither Russian nor American. He's neither Negro nor white. He is a certain man, any needy man, on one of the numerous Jericho roads of life. You see, the, the, the main ethic of the Bible is really the exact opposite ethic of the world. The, the world says protect your rights. The Bible says lay down your rights. If you ever go and you take the time to read the Old Testament, what you're going to see, you're going to see this everywhere. God is for the poor and the needy. He's, for, he's compassionate and kind. This was the ethic that he had for his people. Matter of fact, they, uh, you look at some of the farming principles. God told them that they weren't allowed to glean or the, the ends of their field. These were their people's property. They had worked hard. And, and, and God says, hey, leave a little bit for the poor and the needy. And you see this every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, God expected his people to forgive all debts, to let people go free. You look at Leviticus 19, God tells the nation of Israel, he tells them to treat the foreigners as themselves. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor. The biblical ethic is so different. It's so countercultural because, because it says, yes, you must sacrifice. It's a good thing to sacrifice. So as we look at that, let, let me show you what it looks like to love our neighbor. It's real practical. Number one is this. Well, you got to love God first. Love God first. Again, if you go all the way back to the beginning and answer the question that the lawyer asked Jesus, you'll see what the qualifier is to love your neighbor. You remember it? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. By the way, if you remember from last week, it's the same key to worship too. Now watch this. Worshiping God leads to loving your neighbor. Here's another way of saying it. Having a healthy vertical relationship with God is what will impact your horizontal relationships with others. 
not the inverse of that. See, no matter what society you are in or from, there's always been qualifiers for who we think deserves our care. Most of us live in this bubble of homogeneity where, again, we just ignore the realities of the life around us. We, we, we spend time with people that are just like us. The problem is, Jesus in the Bible strips all of that away. There are no qualifiers for loving your neighbor. And, and, and if you want to have a kingdom impact in this world, well, it starts with loving God and then loving people. See, if you love God, then you won't care about the social divides that we have in our culture. You'll just love people well. You won't care about the socioeconomic divides or, or what people did or, or, or how costly it is. You'll just love people well. When you step outside of the invisible and unspoken cultural norms, you'll start to see that people are just people, and God loves them, and so should we. When you see people as more than the caricature that's assigned to them, well, you won't really care about their past or their circumstances. You'll just care about seeing them and loving them. It's in those areas, by the way, that the gospel tends to be powerful. It's where society starts to shift. The historian Rodney Stark, here's what he said. He said that the early church grew so rapidly because of how they loved people. He says that they didn't care about the social structures that they lived in, but they sacrificially served their enemies and they loved those who disagreed with them. When the plagues hit Rome, they didn't care about their rights, he said or their health. They served the sick that were among them. It got to the point where even the Roman emperor Julian said this. He was writing in the fourth century. This is what he says, regretting the progress of Christianity uh, because they pulled away from the Roman gods. So he was frustrated that, that the Christians weren't worshiping their gods. And he says this, atheism, that's what he called Christians. Atheism has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for help that they should be rendering, and, they give, and the Christians give it to them. You see what he's saying? Their, their sacrificial love and service is exactly what changed even the Roman Empire. It's because they saw dignity in humanity and people made in the image of God that they served. And it turned out to be the greatest evangelistic strategy in the world. By the way, did you know that is the exact same thing that Jesus did for us? Think about it. Jesus sacrificially served us before we ever, ever knew that we needed it. And that's what changed our hearts. That's the power of serving people, even whenever they don't know that they need it. That's what Jesus did for you. You see, Jesus viewed you in your humanity, and he had compassion on you. Guys, our ability to make an impact on our city is directly tied to our view of God. Do we view God as big, and do we view him as good? And do we have a vertical, loving relationship with him so much that our identity is full in him, and then we go serve one another? If you want to turn the world upside down, it's not going to be because you have impressive doctrine because you are the intellectual elite, because you're like the lawyer. It's because you sacrificially served, because you loved God, and then you served others. And number two, lead with compassion. Lead with compassion. Remember earlier I told you that you had to answer the question, what if you were saved by somebody who owed you nothing but rejection? Well, answer that question is what leads to compassion. 
See, it's that question that creates the empathy in you to see the humanity in others. And that's super important. You don't have to agree with everybody to be empathetical with their situation. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you the same question that Jesus asked the lawyer. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Well, let me say it this way. If you were to place yourself in the parable right now, who would you place yourself as? Would you be the priest or the Levite? Would you be the lawyer asking the question? See, according to this, you'd be the guy on the side of the road. You know who the Samaritan would be? Not us. That's the whole point. It's Jesus. See, Jesus is the Samaritan in the story. He's the outcast. Jesus is the one that nobody expected. See, here's the thing. Jesus came to rescue us, and he had every right to not stop on the side of the road. He could have just kept going. It wasn't like he was obligated to come to this earth and to rescue us. We, we were the ones that walked down the road, the, the blood road, if you will. We were the ones that got ourselves in that situation, and yet Jesus had compassion. Jesus went down the road of blood to have compassion on us. He sacrificed his life. He paid our debt, and then he promised to come back and take care of us. He knew that the only way that he could ever help us would be to put his life at risk. It would cost him everything. Guys, that's super important because that's the gospel story, and that's the dynamic that changes our lives. It's why the rhythm of serving our city can bring joy and can change your heart. Because you first understand that you're not the hero. You're the one that got rescued. When you get this dynamic, well, you start to grow in the Christian life. You start looking up to God and you start worshiping him. And, by the, and then you see the fact that, well, God died for you. And because God died for you and he came to rescue you, then that produces a humility in you to go and serve the people around you. You stop asking if people deserve a handout and you start sacrificially serving because you recognize deep down that you and I didn't deserve the grace of God. So you don't begin with your rights, well, because you look at Jesus who laid down his rights for you. See, that's the key. That's the dynamic. You don't care about the cost of helping others because you know that God went to infinite lengths to help you. Which leads to number three. The very last thing that Jesus said is, do something. Just do something. You notice that? You notice how he ended the parable with the lawyer? You go do something. Go do likewise. One of the true marks of maturity of the Christian faith is this. Are you a good neighbor? When people look at City Church, you know what I want them to say? I want them to say, man, I, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but they love so well. Like when I show up or whenever I have a need or whenever I get sick, those people are the very first people to sacrificially love me. I want people to say that they act just like Christ. One of the, the most devastating quotes I've ever heard is from Gandhi. Here's what Gandhi said. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You ever thought about that? I don't about you. That kind of hurts. <laughs> Cuts a little deep, doesn't it? Well, it hurts kind of because, well, there's some truth in it. Could it be that we've stopped seeing ourselves rightly in relation to the gospel? Since we've been talking about rhythms of growth uh, for the Christian life, this, this one's super easy, guys. It really is. It's not, it's not easy to do, but it's easy to get. We don't have to do mental gymnastics to get Jesus' point. If you want to grow in the Christian life, you've got to do something. 
It's taking what you know about God. It's, it's seeing yourself in right relation to God, and then it's loving the people around you. It's deciding to love your enemy. It's deciding to serve, to serve the people around you. Maybe for you, you need to start serving at City Church. And it's not because, again, we, we need more volunteers, if you will. No, we serve because you never know who's going to come into those doors. You never know who had a conversation with Jesus on their way to church that morning saying, God, this is the last time, the last time I'm going to church. And if those, those church people, don't, don't, if they ignore me again, I'm never going back. So your warm smile that greets people or watching their kids or creating safe environments, you're displaying the gospel. You are being like Christ. Maybe you need to serve the needs of the people around you. Maybe it's your neighbors. I don't know about your neighborhood, but mine, it seems like everybody has COVID right now. Go drop off a meal. Go care for them. Maybe you need to um, start caring for the people that, that, that literally can't put their kids in school right now because they both work and, and the schools are shut down and they're virtual. And you go in and you help during this crazy time. Or, or you go partner with Just One Africa and sponsor a kid that, that you, you get to send them to school or, or Faith Bridge Foster Care or what. There are so many opportunities for you to serve. Just do something. Because at the end of the day, how you serve your neighbor is a mirror back into how you love God. That's the entire point of Luke chapter 10. Sitting in worship to God leads to seeing yourself rightly. It leads to seeing yourself as the wounded man on the side of the road needing to be rescued, which then leads to being compassionate on the people around you. You know, just this week, I, um, I've been reading this book that tells a story about back in the day. And when I say back in the day, I mean like way back in the day, like 1774 back in the day. And it tells a story about a book that was written in Europe. And it was, it was so unique because the hero of the story of this book actually committed suicide. And that was unprecedented. It got to the point where people in Europe started committing suicide. Um, and, and it created this epidemic, if you will, to the point in which European societies started to ban this book. So much for the Enlightenment and free speech and all that. Well, that went out the window, and, and they banned the book, and as they did that, some sociologists decided they were going to study what was going on here, and, and here, here's what they found. They found that, um, that this, actually, this actually created a phenomenon that, that they, they called a social contagion. Basically, what they're saying is social networks tend to spread like viruses. Think like the mob mentality. They were basically saying, if you can get a group of people to do something, then eventually everybody else starts doing it. Uh, everybody wants to be in the in crowd. Uh, my, my crazy friends tell me that the Android phones are, are better than Apple. They're, they're not right. Well, maybe they are. But everybody, everybody has an Apple because, well, everybody has one. That's just how it works. The, the reality is this. If you want to change your culture, you get a group of people to start doing something so countercultural that it makes a massive impact, and it will catch on like wildfire. What if this was the year? What if this was the year that we served so well that we became the counterculture? You hear what I'm saying? That we became, like Rodney Stark said, the early church was. We went into culture, and we did the very thing that everybody else knew that they needed, and yet nobody knew how to access it. That we tore down the the social and political and racial divides of our culture because we loved our neighbors so well. You want to experience joy this year? I'm just telling you, there's nothing better than serving. Think about it. Who doesn't want to live in a society like that? Who doesn't want to raise their kids in a place where everybody, everybody's sacrificially loving each other and laying down their rights for each other and putting their neighbor ahead of themselves? City Church, that's who we are. 
That's what it looks like to grow in the Christian life, by the way. It's, it's worshiping God and then serving your city. And next week, I'll talk about loving our world. But that's the case. If you invest deeply in this city by loving and serving, I promise you, joy will spread faster than COVID here. I promise you, you will see God do incredible things in this world and in your own hearts. See, church, that's the next rhythm. So let me pray for you, and I hope you have a great Sunday. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for um, serving us. Lord, we are, we are the ones who needed to be rescued. So God, help us to see ourselves rightly, and then help us to love well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, church, you are sent.